Hello, and welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. Ecclesiastes 6.10, Solomon writes, Whatever one is, he has been named already. For it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life? All the days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? Chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is as a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Consider the work of God. For who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. One more time, this is the word of God for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. Just, just a word of prayer if you'd join me. Father, thank you. Thank you. Um, this is the day that you've made. We're thankful that we get to be in this place, to, to be reminded of you, to rejoice and be glad in this day because of you. Thank you, God, for your word. A lamp to our feet, a light to our path. God, you know, we know that we need your guidance. We need your light to light the way, your word to guide our path so that we might walk with you the way that we desire, the way that you call us. God, this time's for you, for you to speak. God, for your voice to be heard. So may we have ears to hear what your spirit is seeking to speak to us each individually and us corporately today. May we have ears to hear you as your church. And Jesus would you speak? Would you speak through your word, even through me, a broken vessel who is in you and in your hands. I pray that you would use me today 
to speak to us. Holy Spirit, come. Father, be glorified. Jesus, be at the center. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. 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 Jeremiah's always good for a good clap, you know. I love it. I love it. Well, um, this morning, I I like to preach from the sermon title. uh, I want to call the message this morning, The Better Way. The Better Way. So you can write that down. Can you say The Better Way? Let's try that again. Say The Better Way. This is where Solomon leads us in chapter 7, and it's rather refreshing. Because all along the way here in the past six chapters, all Solomon has been showing us is the not-as-good way, the lesser way. Um, If you're joining us here for the first time, as we've been studying Ecclesiastes, we have been embarking across a, a study of a very unique book. This ancient literature coming out of Hebrew culture thousands of years ago, written by one of the greatest leaders and kings and most wealthiest men in all of history, King Solomon. Solomon has had his own experience with God, a man who had his own wisdom that God had given him, but for many years he lived like a fool. How many of you guys know that you can have wisdom in your head and still live like a fool, okay? Anybody here human? That's another question, okay? Um, And that was Solomon's journey. Um, But many people believe that though he strayed away from the faith and from God, this was sort of his letter of penitence. This was his his reporting of his research and what he found walking without God after of life walking with him as well. And so Solomon writes this book from a unique angle. He's experiencing, he's experimenting rather with a, with a perspective in life that says, what if God didn't matter? What if all that we had in life, is this phrase he calls, was just under the sun? What if that's all we had? Under the shining sun, here in the sunshine state. What, what if that's all we had, all right? No eternity, no God, just our lives. We're born, we work, we do some things, we die. He's kind of been exploring that perspective, and he has been going to town on that perspective. He has, you could say, beat the dead horse of trying to find purpose in this life, so much so that he, this is his conclusion. He says, okay, you're an atheist. Okay, that's, 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 you know, I guess that's fine. Not really, but okay, that's where you're at. Um, or you're a secularist. He goes, okay, that's what you believe, but here's what you can't deny. You cannot deny that without God and without eternity, everything in your life is worth nothing. In fact, he uses this word vain, vanity. He says all is vanity. He uses this word over 40 times in this book. That's his conclusion. In the Hebrew, it's this word, does anybody remember the Hebrew word? Hevel, awesome, we're learning Hebrew up in this place, okay? Hevel is the only Hebrew word we know, maybe shalom too, but anyway, uh, Hevel, and it's a word that means a wisp of vapor or a cloud of smoke. He says, that's what life is like without God. Without any creator that made your life for a purpose, on purpose, with eternity in mind, it's all hevel. And trying to grab meaning apart from God, it's like trying to grab a substantial handful of smoke. It doesn't work out. Um, and, And that's been his conclusion. And where has that left us, Solomon would say? If that is the way things are, just vain, well, what are you left with? Well, here in chapter 6, Solomon tells us, he says, if that's the case, you're left with man's best. You're, You're left with man's best attempt to make sense of his own life. You're left with man's best effort to navigate his own life. You're you're left with man's best attempt to try to find his own meaning somewhere else. 
But the problem with this view of it being man's best is just that. It's man's best. <laughs> it's been said that really at the end of the day, the best of man is man at best. The best of us in here, we're still human. And left in and of ourselves, we have a problem still that Solomon says. Even with our best, he tells us this. He tells us there in chapter 6, we just read it. Did you notice verse, four, uh, verse what is it there? It's verse 10. Whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man. You're still man. You still have your human limitations. You still can only understand so much. You only have so much perspective. You, you have a limited capacity as man to make sense of your life and find meaning and purpose. To know what's right from wrong or up and down. Uh, that, that's what he's saying here. I think you think about this big idea and I think about the problem of man's best in two ideas. The problem with man's best is that it's both subjective and it's subjected. Let me explain this. First, at the end of the day, if all we have is man's best, what we have is simply subjective perspectives. Because if there's no God, who's to say what's really the best kind of life? It's really just your subjective opinion. And we can also like, look at this truth in everyday things of life that are impossible. I mean, just the simple things of life are impossible to get people to agree on, right? Like, you ever had that happen where someone's like, man, you, you have to go see this movie. It is the best movie you have ever seen. And you go see it and you're like, it was the worst movie I've ever seen. Or you got to try this restaurant. You got to listen to this new Kanye album. You got to do something here. Now for me, personally, as a longtime Kanye fan, I think this new album is one of his best. Personally. But you just said, okay? <laughs> so to you, it's his worst. Okay, listen. Listen. It's just subjective. Who's to say? Who's to say? For those of you who are questioning the, uh, the pastor of this church's salvation, let me just take a minute to say... Kanye West recently has described his own spiritual awakening, and it's a really cool thing that seems to be happening. He has released a, a new album called Jesus is King, and the album, from my perspective, doesn't lay out any false theology. It actually proclaims a pretty pure gospel, and I love what Greg Laurie said, it re- said recently. He was talking about it today. People are looking on going, well, is he really saved? I mean, come on. And everyone wants to question that, and, and Greg Laurie said, shut up. <laughs> I love that. He said, anytime someone takes a step towards Jesus, we should celebrate it, right? Amen? So, Kanye, you're welcome at Solus Church, all right? I think his album that he recently released is one of his best, but again, you might say with, without some perfect standard. It's just subjective, but it's more than that. It's more than us trying to agree on what's better than the other in life. Some people think the Christian life is the best. Some people don't, one, one way or the other. But the problem we all have without God is we're also subjected. Subjected to what? Well, he tells us it also there in verse 11. There are many things that can increase vanity. How is man the better? This is what Solomon's been saying. We are, because of sin in this world, we are subjected to vanity. We're subjected to meaninglessness. It's our condition. Because of sin, remember, this is not just a book for non-believers. Solomon is trying to get believers to take off the rose-colored glasses and take a brutally honest look at life in a fallen world. Not to just act like everything's okay. No, there are some real problems in this world. Things we can't make sense of, but without God, we're stuck in that subjective and subjected state. So much so, 
With man's best being just that, man's best, here's what he says. Did you notice this question, verse 12? For who knows what is good for man in life? I mean, if that's where we are, all of our days, which are just going to, this is as depressing as this book gets, here's one of those depressing sound bites from the book of Ecclesiastes. I can't wait for Christmas. Christmas is all about joy. We're not there yet. It's coming. For now, let's walk through this together. He says, man's vain life, which he passes like a shadow. I just think of Peter Pan, don't you? No, me, I do, I do, I see it. Just kind of chasing uh, after this purpose, chasing after this meaning, but as soon as the sun sets, that shadow is gone, and just like our lives. Now here's what's really interesting. Solomon asks a question in verse 12 that he ends up answering in chapter 7. So this is what Solomon will do. He he will not raise questions that he himself doesn't know the answer to. He will, and the Bible does this all the time. Jesus did this all the time. Jesus often, when people would come to Jesus and ask him questions about God or theology or eternal life or whatever, Jesus would often respond with a question, right? And it wasn't because Jesus needed their answer like he didn't know. You know what I'm saying? Often what Jesus would respond with in that way was was so that man would think about these things, to to ask ourselves the question. And Solomon has us asking ourselves this question. He says, who can really tell us what a good life is? In a world of vanity, he says it again in verse 12, for who knows what is good? But it's interesting that Solomon says that, but then in chapter 7, he says, a good name is better than precious ointment. So it's like, wait. So Solomon, are you saying that you can tell us what's good, right? So he goes from saying, who knows what's good to, I know what's good. Now this is setting us up for a fulfillment that comes through looking to who Solomon has been pointing to in this whole book. We've been saying it this way. That Ecclesiastes is the question to which Jesus Christ gives the answer. Ecclesiastes raises these questions in life that maybe we need to ask ourselves so that we are led to Jesus. We've also been saying it this way, that Ecclesiastes has been giving us a taste of what's bitter, that we might reach for what? What's better? What's better? And that's why, again, I call this message the better way. The better way. That is where Solomon is leading us. You could think of it this way. He's leading us as we look at man's best. He's leading us beyond man's best toward God's better. If this doesn't, by the way, sum up what the Christian faith is, I don't know what does. If you're here for the first time and you're wondering, what, why do all these people gather in a middle school every Sunday morning? Why would you do that, right? Why, why are you guys in a cafeteria right now studying a book that's thousands of years old and singing songs? The reason is because we have recognized that God has a better way. He has a better way than anything that we can try to go for. A a better way than anything that we could try to muster. You see, it's beyond our best toward God's better. That's what it means to be even a Christian. There's a great example of this in the book of of Mark. A story with this woman in in Mark's gospel. uh, And it tells us about this woman that she had a sickness that she had a, a lifelong uh, issue, um, a flow of blood. And it tells us this in Mark 5, 26, that she spent all that she had trying to solve her own problem. But it says this, that she was no better. But you ever had this happen? You tried to make things better and it only got worse? You ever tried to do things your way and it didn't get better, went in the opposite direction? That's what happens with this woman. 
In fact, this is what happens, and this is what has happened with all of us apart from God. We know that something is wrong, and we take a lot of our own time to try to make our own best effort to make things right, but it's the grace of God to sometimes let that thing get worse. Do you know what I'm saying? So that in it getting worse, here's what happens. It says this in Mark 5. It says, but when she had heard about Jesus. Aren't you thankful that you've heard about Jesus? Doesn't that change everything? It says when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd. She touched his garments. For she said, if I only may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. The scriptures go on to say, that immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. What a great visual of what it means to be a Christian. By the way, a Christian is not someone who has gotten it all together and been good enough and then God has accepted them. That's not a Christian. That's a religious person who's living under an illusion because there is no man or woman who can measure up to God's standards. There is no man who is drowning who can rescue himself. A Christian is simply someone that says, God, I've tried this on my own and I give up. Your way is better. You're a much better savior. You're a much better healer. In fact, this is what it means to be saved, actually. Because for most of us, this is what we've tried to do in our own lives. We've tried to save ourselves through tuning God out and finding fulfillment in the things of this world. Or we've tried to save ourselves by getting right with God and getting a little religion in our lives but neither of those things will get us where the way of God can get us. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. See, it's a better way. Can you say better way? And this is what we're getting at here in Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's, a, it's a picture of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. I love this scripture in Hebrews 8. What a great scripture about this. It says that Jesus, our high priest, notice this verse, Hebrews 8, 6, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. Whatever your old priesthood is, right? Uh, that old way of trying things. The old priesthood was the old Levitical system by which man could do their best to be right with God through sacrifices and law-keeping. But Jesus' way is far superior to the way of legalism and law-keeping. It tells us this, that Jesus is the one who mediates for us a far, say, better covenant with God based on, say, better promises. The better way of Jesus. His way is so much better. Isn't his way of saving us better than the way that we try to save ourselves? So much better. It's the better way. And that's what Solomon is leading us into. Letting us exhaust our resources of our own best so that we might be left with nothing so that we can cry out for God and to see him for what's better. Now, here's what's interesting. The word better, did you know this? It's used 21 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's a lot of times. It's more than any other book in the Bible, better. We tend to think of a book of Ecclesiastes just being sour, but it's it's actually for something better. And in this passage that we just read here in chapter seven, it's used nine times. Out of those 21, nine of the times that the word better is used, it's used in this section. So that's what, let's, let's look at that next here. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, Solomon gives us eight better ways of God. Displayed by a life that, that has given up their best for God's better, Solomon's going to give us, in light of that, in light of God having the better way, He's going to show us eight better ways here. Now, if you're here for the first time, I just want to give you um, a little context as to how I preach sermons. 
You will go crazy if you're thinking, wait, that was the intro, and now how many points are there? I just want to say this, okay? The typical way that I like to preach and communicate is I have a big heart to give a lot of context on the front end. So point one is not a time checkpoint. Can I just say that? I just want to put that out there, okay? (laughs) Good, okay? Because sometimes it's like, oh my gosh, it's uh, 10 minutes till service gets out. Point one, (laughs) right? You got two minutes left. You haven't even got on to point two yet, you know? And sometimes that can happen, but I just want to put that out there so that you're not sh- overstressing. I'm going to do my best uh, to get us out here on time. Can we just put time away for a second and enjoy the word of God? Can we do that and not get too stressed out? Thank you. Appreciate that. Makes me feel good. Okay. Eight better ways. You want to look at these with me? Let's do it. Okay. The first one that Solomon gives us is, write this down, the better way of good character. The better way of good character. Solomon tells us in verse 1 of chapter 7, in light of God having the better way, he says that a good name is better than precious ointment. A good name is better than precious ointment. Now, um, it's an interesting idea, right? A good name. Um, If you study the scriptures, you start to see this idea come up over and over again. Uh, It's even reiterated in the book of Proverbs uh, it, it tells us this in Proverbs, that a good name is to be chosen rather than good riches. Now, today in our American Western culture, names can often mean different things, or we can name people and things for different reasons. Um, sometimes you name your child, for example, because you like the sound of it. All right, You're like, I like how Penelope sounds. I'm going to name my third child, my second daughter, Penelope, so that we can call her Penny, because that's going to be fun. All right, and I think it's cute, so we named her that. Okay. Sometimes you go, you know what? I want to name my son Judah, because Judah means praise and thanks, and that's what we feel in our hearts from us having this baby. Now that is more consistent with how the Bible uses the idea of a name. In Scripture, a good name or having a name, it spoke not just to your title but to your identity. Just last week, Joseph and Deandra Morgan had their fourth child. What was that Thursday? That's amazing. Yeah, clap for that. That's a big deal. And I was just at Joseph's, we're neighbors, just over his house the other day, and he was sharing with me the, the name, uh, Nathan Benjamin, and, and what it means to them, and just what they're praying for with their child, and, and that's the idea of Scripture. Remember when Moses asked God to show him his glory. Moses said, God, would you show me your glory? I want to I know who you are. I want to see you for who you are. And the Bible says that God said, sure, Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to proclaim my name to you. For God to proclaim his name was to reveal the very nature of who he was. That's why all throughout scripture you'll see the people of God, especially in the Old Testament, naming locations. You ever seen that? Right? I'll call this place Bethel. All right? They're naming places to remind them of what happened there. It's the nature of it. So this isn't just saying, hey, have a, you know, do you have a good name? How's your name? What is it? It's Kyle? Oh, gosh, I don't know if that's a good name. I don't know. You know. You could do better than that, parents, you know? I'm just kidding, all right? It's a great name. It's a great name. The idea here is not like a cool title. It has to do with character. So, so Solomon is saying that to have good character, listen, who you really are, when no one's watching but God sees your character, the substance of who you are, to have a good name, to have a good identity, to have a good character, a godly character, he says it's better than, notice this, precious ointments, I'm glad I can finally lay this question to rest. I know you've been struggling your whole life. What's better? Precious ointments or a good name? 
A good name is better than precious ointments. You're welcome. Okay? Now, obviously, that's foreign to us. I'm being sarcastic because not too many of us thought this morning, you know, what should I do today? Should I be, have godly character or should I you know, put on my precious ointments? Like, what do I do? All right? Now, in that culture, precious ointments was sort of the modern-day perfume or cologne. It was a way to dress the head and the garments to give off an appearance of maybe I didn't get my shower or my bath, but you can think I did because I smell like a precious ointment, okay? And so that, that was the idea. Here's, the, here's the, the, even the poetic idea that Psalm is leading us to think about. Ready for this? He's saying this. What's more important is not how you appear to people, but it's who you are before God. A good name is better than precious ointments. Anybody can work hard to get a good reputation, but sometimes your, rep, sometimes your character and your reputation should match. Can I say, by the way, like, this is really big in the church. They're like, I don't care what people think, man. Me and Jesus, you know. You don't, even, you don't even know my true character. That's just my reputation. But it's like, listen, like, here's what we're called to as Christians. We're called to bear the name of Jesus. So it's not about our reputation. It's about the reputation of God and his glory. I'm not saying go out there and try to be perfect so people, you know, no. But let's be humble people of grace, right? Like, how many of us know that so many people aren't Christians today because of the reputation of Christians, like the reputations of people living out a gospel that's not what Jesus came to establish. So, so, so first and foremost, Paul says that we are to be the fragrance, the ointment, think about that, the fragrance of Christ everywhere we go. To some it's the aroma of death, but we pray that to more it's the aroma of life. Everywhere we go, that's our desire, amen? Like I, I, I want to I go into my neighbor and I want to go into my day and I pray that God, despite how broken I am, would use me to bring glory to his name. That we would pray, hallowed be your name through my life. Now, that matters. What Solomon is saying here, though, is, listen, though that's important, what's not important is a fake reputation. We would call that a persona or an alias. Who people think you are as a show to cover who you really are. You see, who you really are, Solomon says, that's better. A good name, godly character matters. It matters. You see, the scriptures will tell us this, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. You know what you read in the Bible? You read that God really cares about the hearts of people. Not just what they do, but why they do it. Not just how gifted they are, but who they are. There's plenty of cases in scripture of men and women that God used that tragically got to the, a place where their gifts brought them, but their character couldn't keep them. Saul was a great example of this. We often kind of pit Saul and David against each other. Saul was the good king. David was the, the shepherd. You know, Saul was the bad king, rather. David was the good king. But if you look at David and Saul, they both started very similarly. Saul was actually very tender to the things of God. He started really well. What's interesting about Saul and David is not that they had character flaws. It's that one of them realized that good character is important. Despite how broken I am, you see, what happened to Saul, uh, the way John Corson says it, I think is so good. He says that Saul had certain cracks in his character that became crevices that he fell into. It's, listen, by the way, we all got cracks, amen? That's, that can sound bad. We got cracks, all right? We have cracks in our character, don't we? Come on, how many people in your life know your cracks? 
They know your strengths. They know where you have it together, but they also know where, where you're missing the mark. And listen, this is what it means to be human. But here's the work of the gospel in our lives is those cracks in our character don't become crevices that we and our families fall into. Listen, I don't want to be someone that does ministry and in, in gifting. I want to lead from intimacy with Jesus. I want to lead from character. So a good name is better than precious ointment, the, the better way of good character. Amen? Second thing he says, and it kind of tags on to this, is he talks about the better way, number two, of mortal awareness. This is really interesting. The better way of good character, and each of these kind of build on each other. The better way of good character because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, correct? But in light of good character, here's, here's something that's important. He says, notice this, not only is a good name better than precious ointment, verse one, but also the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. What? Happy death day to you. What is going on, Solomon? Interesting what Solomon is getting us to think about, okay? We live in a culture that glorifies the birthday. Every year, what we celebrate is, you're here! Another year! You were born and you made it this long. Here's a cake and some presents. And then go back to your normal life for the rest of the year. That's, that's our birthday. It's your birthday. We celebrate the fact that you're here and that you matter. And Solomon is not saying the fact that you're born, it doesn't matter. He's just saying it's not as good to just think about that. It's better to also think about the fact that you're not always going to be here. Yeah, you're here, yippee, but why, he would say. So when you think about the end of your days, you start to contemplate your own life. That's why he goes on to say this. It's better, notice this, in verse two, to go to the house of mourning, read it with me, than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men and the living will take it to heart. It's better. It's better to go to the house of mourning, to go to a funeral, than to go to a house of feasting and rejoicing and and celebrating. Again, he's not saying that it's not good to celebrate. It's not, he's not saying it's not good to go to a house of pancakes. He's not saying it's bad to do that. What he's saying is, though, there's something that you can't get at the house of feasting. If all of your life is numbness and denial of your death and distraction through laughter you're missing the purpose of your life. He said, it's better to get into a house where you think about life and death. You, you go to a memorial service, and I've gone to way too many memorial services from my age, from family members, and, and even you know, going to my mom's memorial service three months before my wedding. That was a really unique contrast. You know, there was the house of feasting on our wedding day. Um, Brittany and I, by the way, celebrate 10 years this week is our 10-year our anniversary, and I, it feels like yesterday. Just yesterday, that house of celebration but just a couple months prior, it was thinking about the life of my mom. There was something happening on my wedding day that was special, but, but there in my mom's funeral, the living w- was taking to heart his life. When was the last time you've taken your life to heart? When was the last time you said, I- I'm not gonna be here on this earth forever. I'm not gonna be able to serve God for the mission he's given me on this earth forever. We got an awesome time coming. But we can't share the gospel in heaven. We can't serve Jesus in our workplace in heaven. We can't raise our children to know Jesus. Do you get what I'm saying? 
The great poem by C.T. Studd says it best. He also has the best name ever because his last name is Studd. But C.T. Studd famously said, I won't read the whole thing to you, but he said, two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice. Bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. It's only what's done for Christ that will last. We should take that to heart. It's why it may be better to think about not just the fact that you're here, but to have a sense of, as w- what I said earlier, mortal awareness, knowing that you won't be here forever. Here's what David said in Psalm 39. Show me, Lord, my life's end. I love this. It's the NIV version. And the number of my days, let me know how fleeting my life is. What a great prayer to pray every day. You know what I'm saying? God, help me know that I don't get this day back. Mortal awareness. Thirdly, he goes on to say, not only is it the better way of mortal awareness, but this kind of continues along the same thread. It's the better way of sorrow and sadness. The better way of sorrow and sadness. He tells us that it's, uh, it's also verse three. He says, sorrow is better than laughter. Now here's what's funny. None of us agree with this stuff, but let's look at it. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made Better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning and the heart of fools is in the house of mirth because, he says, because sorrow is actually better. So he says, the more funerals that you go to, the more wise you are because you understand that sorrow is actually more productive than happiness. The better way of sorrow and sadness. Now, none of us would naturally say this. I don't know about you. I much prefer to be laughing in my stomach hurting than crying and my chest hurting, okay? Like, I much prefer happiness over sorrow, but but what Solomon is saying is, yes, laughter feels better for the flesh, but sorrow is better for the soul. It's better for the heart. If you allow God to do with it what he desires, what he can. Now, I started thinking about this and reminded me recently of of an Instagram caption and post that I saw um, by one of my one of my favorite um, people that I follow there on Instagram, his name is Scott the Painter, and he's a follower of Jesus that uses art to express different aspects of the gospel and following Jesus. And recently, he did a post about sadness from the great uh, Disney Pixar movie Inside Out. And, and this movie, it's, it's obviously, it's, it's, there's some critiques on it. It's not necessarily written from a Christian position. But you have these different characters in this movie that sort of make up the anthropology of this girl. Like her emotions are these, it's really creative idea that they're like these different uh, figures in her mind controlling her emotions. And it, actually, the more you think about it, it's kind of messed up. But, um, but there's this great character in the movie named Sadness. Sadness kind of plays the part of steering the young girl's um, sorrow. And uh, Scott the Painter describes uh, recently uh, going to Disneyland with his kids. And he posted this picture where he posed with Sadness. That's just the line you want, you'd want to line up for, isn't it? Just want to get a picture with sadness, my girl. Uh, actually, that's exactly what happened. L- listen to this. This is what Scott the Painter said. He said, in a society so set upon never feeling bad, it's almost unbelievable that you can get your picture taken with sadness at Disneyland. He said, the line at Disneyland as I went there 
was longer to see sadness than it was to see joy. He says, I don't think this is some commentary on the sickness of our society as much as, listen, sadness is something that we are all familiar with but feel a stranger to. He said, I saw a severely disabled boy in a wheelchair reach out and hold sadness's hand for a good while as if he was saying, I know you. I saw a middle-aged single woman give her an unusually long hug before they took their standard Disney souvenir character photo. I found myself taking a picture with my children, but then deeply desiring to get a picture by myself with her as to physically memorialize, listen to this, the history of our long secret conversations together. He goes on to say this, that sadness is a core emotion in all of us. And it's not there to bum us out, but to lead us, this sounds like Solomon, but to lead us to a deeper fullness of human experience. It's been very helpful throughout my life to personify my fears and emotions, to speak and interact with the very hidden parts of me that are leading me on that journey of wholeness. He says, I did have a magical time at Disneyland with my family, but unexpectedly, listen to this, one of the most touching moments was physically hugging sadness at the happiest place on earth. Anybody resonate with that? I resonate with that. God, what do I do with sorrow? I love the idea of happiness, but it seems like sorrow is such a a more familiar friend to me. And Solomon says, do not be afraid. Don't reject sorrow. Let God use it. Let God use it. He, He says, if you let God use it, sorrow is actually better than laughter. Sorrow and sadness in the long run are better even than happiness. And, and I thought of a few ways, you know, as you think about this, and, and here's what we're trying to get at. Do, you, do we know this, that every time we're going through suffering, God has a great purpose. Every time we're going through sorrow, there's something that God wants to do if we'll let him. We also need to be reminded that we have an enemy that also has a purpose in our sorrow. And what he wants you to do in your sorrow is to tighten up into a shell and keep everybody out. Or he wants you to stuff your sorrow and put on a fake face. But Jesus calls us as we are. Thank you, God, for that. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. We could probably throw in there and are sorrowful and sad. I mean, think of the men that ended up with David, just distressed. And come to me as you are, and I will give you rest. And I won't say, "Get get rid of that sorrow. Jesus will say, I'm a man of sorrows. I know what it's like to feel what you're feeling. Allow me to take your sorrow and refine you through it. That's actually what the NLT version says. I I love this translation of this verse. It says this, that sadness has a refining influence on us if we let it. Now here's a couple ways that I think sorrow and suffering and sadness can do that. Here's just three simple ways. I think through sorrow, here's how the heart is made better. If you've experienced deep sorrow before, you know this. Um, This is, again, the better way of God. Sorrow has a way to make your heart simpler. It's amazing how much sorrow will put things into perspective about what matters and what really doesn't. There's something about going through suffering that causes the complexification of life to sort of diminish and you just go, I want to hold my family really close. I want to love Jesus. I want to serve him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that this is one of the ways that Satan actually deceives followers of Jesus by getting them so caught up in the complexity. It's the simplicity that's in Jesus. There's something about sorrow, I think, that makes the heart simpler. Sorrow also makes the heart stronger if we let it, if we let God, rather. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans 5 that that it's through our tribulation that God is actually producing perseverance. And the reason right now maybe why you're going through what you're going through 
is because there's more to come in this life. And God is building within us a resilience, a, a strength, a strength of heart. I think of David saying, wait on the Lord and be of good courage. I know you're tired. I know you're sad, but let God strengthen your heart. There's a strength that comes through sorrow, like the strength that comes through working out. It takes pain to build that muscle. Uh, how, many of, how many of you guys can actually resonate with the fact that there have been, I mean, think about your life, right? Think about things 10 years ago that stressed you out, that wouldn't even take a second of your attention today. It's because God has built your strength. He's built your endurance. The heart also, this is such a big one, the heart, um, through sorrow, the heart is made softer. Let, let me say this this way. It can be made softer. It very much can be made harder. That happened to Pharaoh. Happens to a lot of people, people in my family that I know that through suffering and and hardship, their hearts were actually hardened more towards God. But through looking at God as the one of the better way and trusting that he's at work, the heart can be made softer. You know, it really helps when you see that, um, listen, what you're walking through right now is maybe not even for you or about you. There's somebody you're going you're gonna to come across in the years to come that's, walk, that's going to walk through what you're walking through right now. And because of what you've walked through, there's this softness of heart that you have towards them. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 1 that you are able, with the comfort you've received from God, to now pour out that comfort on them. Sorrow. We tend to reject it. Solomon says you should accept it. Through sorrow, the heart is made better. Let's, let's keep moving along here. Um, fourthly, he, sa- he talks about the better way of wise rebuke. Now, I think it's so important to constantly remind ourselves that these are the better ways of God because naturally none of us would say, yeah, of course that's better. Of course it is, right? But here, the better way of wise rebuke, he goes on and he says this. He says in verse 5 that, speaking of the heart of the wise, he says, it's better to hear, there's the word better again, the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. This is an interesting one. The better way of rise, wise rebuke. It's better to hear the song of the wise than to, or the, the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools. Now, um, the word rebuke is interesting. Uh, another word for it is reprove. He's saying this is a really good thing to have in life. He says it's really good for you to not just have people singing your praises. Flattery. Oh, you're awesome. Oh, you're so great. Oh, you're the best. He says that song is the song of fools. Because those people don't really know you then. In other words, he's saying, listen, if, if you're going to live a life of, of, of real relationship, you're going to move beyond surface level compliments. This is what we want as a church, right? Like, I'm not saying we shouldn't encourage each other, you know? Like, let's sing over each other every now and then. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, that was awesome. Hey, you're, you have this gift. Hey, I see that in you. But he says, he says, listen, here's what's better than that. In that place where you're starting to get to know each other, we're able to call each other out on the things that are holding us back. So, so let's celebrate the things that are bringing us forward, but let's love each other enough to rebuke every now and then. He says that's actually better than being praised. It's better. It says it this way in Proverbs. Uh, in Proverbs, it says that it's faithful wounds that a friend gives. Faithful are the wounds of the friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Right? They're fa- they, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Right? It hurts. They're wounds, but they're helpful. They're productive. Proverbs goes on to also say this in Proverbs 13. I love this verse. Uh, It says in Proverbs 13, 20, it says, walk with the wise and become wise for a companion of fools suffers harm. So so we get the idea of what Solomon's getting out here. Um, I I think if we could summarize 
the encouragement that Solomon is getting at is he's asking us about the depth of our relationships. Who are you walking with? Are you walking in life with people who really know you, who you've given an ear to speak into your life? Or are you your own rebuker? Now, sometimes you've got to rebuke yourself. Have you ever rebuked yourself? Like, okay, right? Don't do that. Have you ever done that? Andrew, push, you know, why'd you say that, right? And, and yeah, you need that, but you desperately need more than that. I desperately need more than that. We need people that have eyes on our blind spots. We need people that can speak in and not just flatter us, but to encourage us. Here's a way that I would think about it. I think the heart of this is close and consistent proximity to the right kinds of people. Wise people. Wise people. Close and consistent. Okay, not just close, but consistent. It's got to be regular. Join a community group. Get in fellowship. Get in relationship. It's it's consistent. But not just consistent, it's got to be close. Yeah, I come every week. I'm at every church function there is, but are you opening up? Is there a point to which the loving relationships around you are causing you to be a bit more vulnerable than you naturally would? See, that's where God really works through us. All right, it's the better way of wise rebuke. Um, I, I just love this psalm. I just have to, have to share it with us. Uh, this is such a cool psalm. I love this. None of us would naturally love this, but look what it says. It says, let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness. Aw, thanks for hitting me. So kind. And let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil. Notice this. Let my head not refuse it. You ever tried to like shampoo your dog's head before? You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, and you're like, come on, you know? Like, that's the idea. Like, anytime I try to, you know, give Penny her bath and I, I the, the washing the hair is the worst, okay? Everything else, like, it tickles. But when you go for the head, it's like, it's, it's the worst. It's the worst. It's like the whack-a-mole game. I'm not beating my kid, but you know what I'm saying, right? Like, it, it's, it's like impossible to get, just sit still. And there's this tendency also, I think, with rebuke to kind of dodge, right? Like, or defend. He goes, no, just receive it. It's good. It's good for you. Interesting. He goes on to say this. He talks about the better way of completed things. We're getting through these now. The better way of completed things. He, he talks about the wisdom that is gained through the rebuke of the wise. Um, but he talks in verse 7 about how oppression, how sinfulness can destroy a wise man's reason. How we can actually start on the right, right track, but we can veer off. We can become debased in the heart through sins. He talks about bribe, but notice verse 8, but the end of a thing is better than its beginning. So what's better in this text? The end of a thing is better than its beginning. And right now you're going, Andrew, this sermon better end as good as it started, okay? But here's what Solomon is getting at. He's getting us to think about our life, and he's saying, okay, it's, it's good that you start well. It's good that you're gaining wisdom. But he told us earlier that when you go to the house of mourning, you think about the end of all men. The end is better than the beginning. Um, I think it's why Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. He didn't say, go into all the world and lead people to start a relationship with me. Pray this prayer. Okay, good? All right, next town. No, like... Following Jesus, it's about long obedience in the same direction. Faithful, faithful at home, same place, same people. Faithful serving in the church, local, present. I mean, it's just faithfulness and continuing. Man, uh, the Bible says that, uh, that nowadays, and it's so true, every man is going to proclaim their own goodness, Proverbs, Proverbs says. 
But it says, who can find a faithful man? Faithfulness. Solomon is speaking here to the importance of not just starting, but finishing. The importance of what we would say, finishing well. I, I think if there's one person in the Bible that personified what Solomon is talking about here, it's the great apostle Paul. I think there were two truths in Paul's life that uh, it led him to the place where at the end of Paul's life, here's what Paul was able to say. I don't know about you, I want to be able to say this. On Paul's deathbed, Paul said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. This is so important. He doesn't just say, I started the fight. He doesn't just say that I began the race or that I have the faith. He says, yeah, I got it, but here I am at the end of my life, and I'm not just another statistic of someone who prayed a prayer and then vanished away. Where are they now? I want to follow Jesus to the very end, is what Paul would say. And Paul at his deathbed, what an awesome thing to say. Here I am. Like, there's a lot of great young preachers out there today that are fascinating, they're drawing so much attention, but lately, the, the people that I want to learn from are not just the, the young men that are drawing all the crowds, I want to I talk to the 80-year-old pastor that's been faithful to his wife and his church his whole life. I think God looks at that even more than he does the big crowds. God values that faithfulness, he sees your faithfulness. And, and Paul, he, he was able at the end of his life to look back and say, I'm not perfect, but I've remained faithful. I've stayed walking with Jesus, uh, rather because he stayed walking with me. I think there are two central truths that we must adopt in our heart if we're going to finish well. Paul had these two truths. Uh, one is a internal resilience, internal resilience. Uh, he says in Acts 20, 24, that in life, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. This is earlier on. Paul's in the middle of his ministry and he had this resilience. There was a resilience that said, yeah, I've started and I loved you, but I'm, gonna, I'm resilient. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay the course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. If we're gonna finish well, we need internal resilience. We've gotta say, listen, I'm, I'm gonna stick through this thing. Good times and bad times, I'm resilient. I'm focused on Jesus. But here's the best part. There's a second part of this that bears up that resilience. It's an external confidence internal resilience that says, God, I'm with you. I'm going to walk with you. You might have to pick me up every single day I, or, or, or bring me back into the fold because I'm going to stray. But God, I'm, I'm focused on you. I'm going to be faithful. But let that always be undergirded by what Paul said in Philippians 1.6. He said that I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work in me is going to complete it. That's our confidence. Amen? My confidence is not my resilience. My confidence in Christ, it needs my resilience. Amen? Like, I need to have that heart that says, God, I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to stay in this marriage. I'm going to stay faithful in the word. I'm going to stay loving my kids. I'm going to stay honoring you in my job. I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to be faithful, knowing that at the end of the day, the best news is that you have me. That you're going to get me across that finish line. So that in the end, we can boast that it wasn't me, but it was Christ in me who's the hope of glory. The sixth better way is the better way of humble patience, which is just a reminder, we're almost getting there. Just some humble patience real quick. We're almost there, okay? Humble patience. He moves on and he says, not only is the end of a thing better than its beginning, finish well, but he says this too, the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The better way of God. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. It's interesting, you know, in the moment of your frustration and my frustration, everything that my body and mind is telling me is better is to respond in pride and anger. 
Does that not always seem like the better way? Like what I need to do right now is let this person know that they cut me off and I'm not happy. (laughs) And I might not tell them that they're number one, but I will stare them in the face and glare at them and roast them on the barbecue, okay? (laughs) That's obviously a humorous example, but think about the people in your life, as, as the great Kanye West said, those that really know you push your buttons like typewriter, all right? Think about the people, I can't, I'm so glad I get to quote Kanye West now, it's awesome, um, but <laughs> think about the people in your life that really get at you, I mean, those people that really know you, I mean, there's, there's, there's a few people in your life that you know, if anyone's going to cause you to lash out in anger, and it seems in those moments that the better way, as you're offended, as you are betrayed, as you are insulted, the better way seems to be to retaliate, to react to have anger rest in you rather than turning from it and controlling it. It's like controlling you. We're talking about this a lot with our kids right now, the importance of controlling your emotions, not being controlled by your emotions. As I'm teaching them, I'm like, this is good stuff, Judah. Can you say it back to me, what I just said to you? You know what I'm talking about, parents? <laughs> it's like, but, but Solomon says, listen, it's always better, notice this, to adopt humble patience rather than prideful anger. And I think it's really interesting that uh, the opposites are, 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 um, are patience and anger, but the opposites are also humility and pride. Usually when I'm most angry, it's because my pride is not happy with what you said to me. Right? And, and, and by the way, pride is never, it's not this thing that we graduate from. It's never like, because the second you graduated from, you're proud of it. You're like, you know, I'm, I'm humble and I'm proud of it, you know? I've heard it said that pride is like a, it's like a five o'clock shadow. You got to shave it every day. You got to deal with it every day. Con- listen, w- none of us can say this, that we are humble people. You know what we can say? We are naturally prideful people, desperately pursuing Jesus in humility. And, and that's the better way, Paul would say, rather than reacting in anger, but responding with, there's something humble about patience. Something humble about that. It's, when you're patient, rather than responsive in your anger, the humility there says this, I'm not God, God, you're God. You're God. I don't need to be God. There's a humility in that. There's a humility in that. Uh, let, let's keep moving here. Um, the better way, I love this one, of present expectation. Present expectation. He, now he tells us something that's better, but the way that he tells us it's better is by rebuking a mindset that thinks otherwise. He says in verse 10, do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Man, it used to just be so much better. How it used to be. The former days. The former days were better. He says, don't say that. Don't say that. He says, That's, it's, it's not a wise thing to be so present in the past that you can't experience God in the future. He says, it's not, don't say that it's better. In the, no, here's what's better. Not yesterday. Today's better, he would say. Now, yesterday, today, and tomorrow all has their own unique strengths. It, it all has its, its, own, its, own, um, its own even weaknesses and challenges. But, but Solomon is saying, um, here's the best way to live. The best way to live is in the present with expectation for the present. 
He talks about having this sense of, of, of not looking back but being ready for right now. That's the big idea here. It's the better way of present expectation. Um, I think sometimes we can do this with God. I think we can, when we're constantly living the comparison game of this season compared to that season, what we're really doing is we're forgetting a central principle that God works in the present. He redeems what's in the past, and he's already gone before us for the future, but the work that God wants to do in our lives, it's not, it's not just, well, it was, it's right now. It's, it's kind of being available to God right now and not stuck in what was that might be one of the biggest obstacles to the, to the church of God moving forward into the mission of God is we're so tied back to old ways. This is how you have to do it. This is what it looks like. But there's this present expectation, I think, that God rewards. Um, and maybe for you, that's something you've been struggling with because there was a time in your relationship with God where things were different. Things were better. Things were easier. Maybe your time in prayer was more seamless and it felt better and it was more rich. Solomon would say, it's not wise to be living in that. But say say instead, God, what do you want to do right now? What do you want to do today? Notice what he says. He says at the end of this passage where we close, he says, he says, consider the work of God. Consider the work of God. Think about the work of God in your life right now and today. Verse 14, in the day of prosperity, if it's a day of prosperity, be joyful. But if it's not, and if prosperity was a former day, He says, then consider that God has appointed both. The former days and the present days, both appointed from God. Let's not be so stuck in the past or worrying about the future that we don't experience God's work in the present. Amen? And the last way of God that's better um, is the better way of trusting God. And it's not in the text here. But it sums up the big idea of what we have been looking at here. This is where Ecclesiastes is going to lead us. Examining the way that we're living our life, examining the thought processes we have and the, the conclusions we've come to, seeing how there's vanity apart from God. But then at the end of the day, it's one thing to go, yeah, all those things are better. But who am I trusting? Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out soulschurch.com.